verse 1. One day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And now for the youth and the teenagers, close your ears, you don't hear this part. But he did not tell his father. Okay, so just an editor's note there. Children, let your parents know where you're going, except in Jonathan's case. So, Moving on to verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines, Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a great panic. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then Saul said, and this is a later scene in the book, then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey from the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. You may be seated. In the famous C.S. Lewis Narnia series, the book The Horse and His Boy, there's a, a powerful conversation between Bree, 
who is, a, who is an arrogant, powerful, strong, young, brash horse, and Aslan, the Christ figure. And Bree says, I'm afraid I must be rather a fool. And it took him a long time to learn that. But Aslan replies, and he says, Happy is the horse who realizes that while he is young, or the human. And so Aslan's point is one around humility, realizing that we are so often foolish, and we need to learn that lesson. And that is something that we saw from Saul last week in 1 Samuel 13, that Samuel called him a fool, and he needed to realize that. And he's essentially, in this passage, on a slippery slope, going further and further down, needing to turn and go back up to realize I'm being foolish over and over again. And that is what he needs to do, and yet fails so often to do it. And so speaking of slopes, that's where we step in and find Jonathan in this passage. He and his armor bearer are on a, a, on a slope looking up at a Philistine encampment where the Philistines had taken over land from the Israelites. So Jonathan and his armor bearer are in a relatively precarious, uh, dangerous position. In this, this passage, we get to learn more about Jonathan. It's essentially our intro to this character. And for many people, Jonathan is one of their favorite people in all of Scripture, partly because it is hard to find anything that he does wrong. He's kind of like the Sir Galahad of the Knights of the Round Table. Virtuous, loyal, honorable, does so much good, and his people are loyal to him in return. But in reality, Jonathan is but a supporting character. He is leading up to David, and he's also a contrast to Saul, that we see so much of what is wrong in Saul by looking at what is right in Jonathan. And so we start off, we see that Jonathan, though he's in a dangerous place, he's in the right place at the right time, Saul is in the wrong place at the wrong, at the wrong time. And why is that? Simply put, Jonathan walks with the Lord, Saul doesn't. Jonathan's focus is so fixed upon the Lord that he just tends to overlook obstacles. Saul is so focused on the obstacles, he loses sight of the Lord in relationship with him. So our first strike in our notes as we look at Saul, we see he's in the wrong place. Uh, Jonathan, in contrast, is in the right place. We see him, like I said, in this disadvantageous position, looking up at the Philistines. And in the Hebrew, it literally says that there were two mountainous crags there, two rocky crags in Hebrew named Thorny and Slippery. That's what the names translate to. So not in a very good position to launch an attack. But he says uh, that, that you know, he's not a reckless or, or an idiot uh, as far as being foolish, but he wants to do whatever he can for the Lord. So he says, maybe, perhaps, the Lord will deliver them to us. I want to do something for the Lord, but I'm not going to presume upon the Lord, you know, necessarily doing whatever I want to do. But if his hand is in this, I want to do it. And that's why he says, maybe, or perhaps, he will bring this about. And so that's why they devise this, this test. Depending on how the Philistines answer, that is how we will respond and step into this. So his faith is great. Jonathan's faith is great. And we want to realize it's not just the faith in some objective. In other words, uh, sometimes we get into the boat where we think, uh, something's not going right, I just need more faith. I need more faith that such and such is going to happen, and if it's not happening, it's because I don't have enough faith in that objective. And that's not the way God lays it out there. 
The, ob- the object of the faith is what matters, our faith in the Lord, not in how much faith we have in him bringing such and such about. And we need go no further than the, the children's catechism. Our children's catechism says, can God do all things? Can God do all things? Yes, he can do all according to his holy will. So God can do anything provided it matches with his will. And hence those silly questions you get sometimes like, oh, can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Or can he lie or can he die? Can he kill himself? Those, those are in a sense silly and meant to be disclaimers against the Christian faith, but they're, they're against God's holy will. That's not part of his nature to do those. So he can do all according to his holy will, That is what Jonathan is seeking to find here. Is it according to your will that we step out and go and attack them? The Philistines do respond in such a way. They basically say, come on up here and we'll show you a thing or two. So Jonathan scrambles literally hand over foot with his armor bearer behind him. They catch the Philistines unaware, you know, likely thinking there's no way they're going to come up here. They strike down 20 of them, okay? Not a huge number, but in the face of those odds, an amazing feat. But what follows next is what matters. Chaos ensues. Verse 15 mentions the word panic three times. In the Bible, when we have something that's three times, that's a complete number. It means utter chaos. And in the verses that follow, there's a three-fold use of the word for confusion. So utter confusion, panic. Picture the, uh, the racing of the bulls in Spain. Just people flying, running away, running over top of each other, literally killing themselves as they flee from Jonathan and his armor bearer because they think it's a whole Israelite army. God is bringing about a massive uh, attack here and defeating the Philistines by using the faith, faith of Jonathan. So as an application, we consider, we consider Jonathan, our first application, and the incredible faith he had. So think about your faith. Okay? If you're a believer this morning, is your faith a product of your environment? What do I mean by that? Recently, sharing gospel with a friend, and he was saying, he was just assuming, well, you were raised that way. That's uh, the way things are for you, or you're, the people you're around, you're just believing what all of them believe. So for some of us, that may be the case that you were raised in a Christian home, never know the day that you weren't walking with the Lord. If that's the case, that is a beautiful testimony that you didn't have to go through hell to get to heaven. Give thanks for that and never lose that thankfulness. But some of you are not the product of your environment. God rescued you out of your misery, out of the miry depths, out of your sin, All the more, do not lose your awe for what God has done for you individually and in sharing that awesome work of God with others. Don't lose that zeal, the same zeal that Jonathan had for his faith. As we move further, verse 23 gives the key. Jonathan's not really the main character. God is. It says that Yahweh saved Israel that day. Yahweh, the Lord, brought about this victory. So scene one closes, Jonathan's victory. We need to look and see what Saul was doing. He has this strike against him because he's on the sideline. He's not where he was supposed to be. In 1 Samuel 10, Samuel had told Saul, go and fight 
and defeat this garrison of the Philistines. And Saul had not done it. So he's on the sideline with the wrong crowd. Who's he with? He's with a priest named Ahijah. Okay? In one sense, it sounds good to be with a priest. And he's got the ark there with him and something else called the ephod, which carried some important stones. So it looks good in the sense he's got these religious things around. But the problem was that priest was not one who was favored by the Lord. The priesthood had been stripped away from the house of Eli many years ago. Ahijah was in that descendant uh, of that family. He was not one who was to be in that office. Saul really wanted to get an answer. He would have brought Samuel to him. But Samuel's going to tell me the truth. I don't want to hear that. He brings forth the ark. You know, maybe the ark will help. He brings the ark, and he's going to lay hands on it, but then he doesn't even do it. He's all confused. He doesn't know right from left, in a sense. And, and the proverb says, The wicked flee when no one is chasing. The righteous are bold as lions. And Saul is quite a mess. As uh, Matthew Henry, old theologian, said this, he said, Men that are the most shallow in substance will be the most particular in shadows. What does he mean there? He means Saul ultimately had no real relationship with the Lord, but he surrounds himself with religious paraphernalia, religious stuff to try to earn God's favor. Many years back, um, in my teenage years, playing on a baseball team, we, uh, we traveled around the nation, and we, it was quite a wild bunch of guys. But come bottom of the last inning, um, and it was a very uh, Roman Catholic background growing up in New Orleans. Our coach was Roman Catholic. Bottom the last, we're down by one. Everybody's huddled up. Hail Mary, full of grace, hail, over and over. We could get quite religious in our time of need. So same thing here. Saul's desperate. He's getting religious. And yet he's just floundering around, not really knowing what to do. So he eventually arrives at, I'll make a vow. I'll make a vow. That'll earn the favor of God. Now, vows in and of themselves, that's an important thing to consider. In general, the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In general, leave it there. But there are times for vows. Paul makes vows. We make vows for church membership. You make a vow at a, at a wedding to your partner. So vows have their places. Vows are very serious. Rash vows are very dangerous. And that's what uh, Saul did here. And what he was doing was following the pattern of other pagan kings around him. If you flip around in the Kings and Chronicles, you'll see these other pagan kings say things like, Well, Elijah, if you have your head on your neck by tomorrow, may the gods so do to me, blah, 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 these rash vows. And that's basically what Saul is doing here. Anybody's going to die who eats before I have vengeance on my enemies. Saul makes this about himself. He makes this vow, this battle, all of it about himself. And in so doing, what he's done in making everything about himself, he's lost the king. He's lost the kingship. That's what happened to him last chapter. He's continuing on the slippery slope. He's lost the kingship, which means Jonathan loses it too. Jonathan will never be king because of what Saul did. Though Jonathan would have been a great king, he will not because 
Saul's sin affects him. Our sin can affect others. And we don't like to hear that often, that somebody else's sin can affect me. But we don't have to go too far in, in, in learning theology to see that that's the way it is. Adam sinned, and his sin nature has been passed down to us. I am affected by that. I am prone to sin because of what Adam did until God changes one's heart. So my sin can affect my wife, my children, you. We affect each other by the way that we live for good or for naught. And we need not look very far in just a simple illustration of what's going on. There's the big soccer matches going on throughout the world, um, the big European competitions. And if, if somebody on one of those teams gets a red card, a foul like that, they're out. Okay, that hurt them. But it hurts the rest of the team, too, because they don't get to replace that player. So throughout all of life, we can see our, our wrongs, our sins have effects on others. But Jonathan is okay with that because he realized the kingdom was never really his. It belongs to the Lord. Jonathan realizes that. So Jonathan is willing to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He's willing to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So why? Why do we make these vows? Why do we make these vows? Let's just think through that. I think I've made silly vows. You've probably made silly vows. As far as silly ones, I think back years back, a rehearsal dinner, a buddy of mine getting married, living down in Louisiana. He had a good old Cajun uh, rehearsal dinner. So I think I probably had a good two or seven helpings too many of beignets and jambalaya and whatever. Laying in bed that night just thinking, I'm never going to do this again. So just this vow that I'm never going to do that self to myself. And we, we make these kind of vows, some silly, some serious, some rash. Why do we do it? Saul's rash vow belongs to the superstitious ones, someone says, which think that God is more likely to listen if I do some sort of self-denial. God's more likely to listen if I do this sort of self-denial rather than resting on what Christ has done in earning the favor for us. So meanwhile, Saul makes this vow. We fast forward over to Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't know it. He's in the midst of being exhausted, weary from battle, sees some honey on the ground. What would you do? Honey has so many good values, from soothing burns to healing cuts to immunities to just giving energy. Back in the Olympics in Greece, even then, they were using honey for energy. So he takes the honey, he eats it, his eyes are brightened immediately. Who can blame him? Who can blame him for that? Well, what the scripture says about Saul, what he's done is, it said in chapter 13, the Israelites were hard-pressed by the Philistine attack. Now it says that they were hard-pressed because of what Saul has done. He has laid this load on them that they can't eat and that they're supposed to go forward into battle because you need to beat them for my sake, Saul is saying. In the 60s and 70s, college coaches would force their players, their, their college uh, football players, to, to have hard practices without water, sometimes even with salt pills. What, what in the world? So, fortunately, uh, you know, we've, we've grown in our knowledge of what's best there, that you can have water during practice now. But that was a load that was put up, 
put on them to hopefully make them tougher and so forth. So Saul is doing something like that to the nth degree, saying, you will not eat until I am avenged. And the word there that's used is essentially the one for Achan. And Achan, unfortunately, was a man who had caused a lot of trouble for Israel earlier um, by stealing what he should not have. So he has troubled Israel in the same way Saul has. He has hard-pressed them. So a godly leader seeks the Lord's honor. A prideful leader seeks his own honor. And that is where Saul is landing. So his second strike now we've seen. Essentially, if you could think of a baseball analogy, that first one, he kind of took a strike. He was not doing what he should have been. He just watched it go. His second one, he basically swings at a pitch in the dirt. It's so bad, he makes this awful vow. Now we're going to see strike three on Saul. So bad, it's almost like he struck out and attacked the umpire, what he does next. It's just not going well for him. The lesson And a powerful one for us is this. If you are wrong, confess it. If you're wrong, confess it. Don't continue to dig yourself a bigger hole, which is what Saul did. He had a chance to say, I erred, I sinned, I made this rash vow and I shouldn't have. I'm not going further with it. I was wrong. But instead, it's as if this is something valiant, And with integrity, I'm going to keep my vow no matter what, even if I kill my own son. And this is not a picture of God killing Jesus for our sake. There's no analogy there. There was no use in Saul going forward and killing his own son, Jonathan. But his rule, his status have been offended, and I've got to keep face, and I'm going to go forward with this. And Jonathan, you must die. But fortunately, Jonathan has an advocate. In fact, he has many advocates who stand with him. And as you think through that, had you been there, Saul says that Jonathan's going to die. Jonathan says, okay, go ahead. Would you have been the one to step across the line and say, no, this man must not die. He is good. I am loyal to him. And knowing if you step across the line, what might Saul say? Fine, off with your head. But fortunately, Jonathan has many advocates who step across the line and say, that is not right. He must live. And uh, Jonathan has those advocates. In thinking of advocates, I would just encourage Redeemer. We have a church that has been advocates for others in many ways. Whether that's caring for widows, widowers, widowers, elderly, mercy needs, Um, uh, orphans through adoption. Redeemer has done well. You have done well in being advocates for others. And may the Lord continue to bless that effort and ministry of being advocates for others. So, Jonathan had many advocates. They are loyal to a leader who they can follow and who is trusted. A leader can't just demand loyalty For no reason, just because I'm a leader, that loyalty is earned. And Jonathan had earned it. And it was not demanded. It was earned through the way he led his men. Humble leader relies upon his advocate. A prideful leader relies upon himself. So Saul almost killed his son, but he's prevented. He doesn't do it. What do you do as our final application? What do you do 
when someone steps in to prevent you, to stop you, to say, this is not right, you're on the wrong path. Years back, was on a hike with some of my boys uh, coming down from a, a peak in Colorado, and as has happened uh, more times than it should have, I took us down the wrong side of the mountain. It looked right. This is, haven't we been here? And so we get down a good ways, and somebody comes up behind us and says, what are you doing here? We're headed right over there. It's the way we came. Nah, we're coming down quite a different path. You should never be here. So we argued a little bit, and yeah, this looks right. Finally, they set us straight and, and quite thankful to have received their counsel, and they steered us off the wrong path before it was way too late. But what do we do when somebody steps in and offers correction, maybe of a spiritual nature? Children, what do you tell your parents? You know, thanks for the time out, mommy. Or a teen, where the parent is speaking into the teen's life. It's, I don't want you to do this same thing that I did that was wrong. Okay? Children and teens, you tell your parents, thanks for that, and can I have more? Okay? So that's a lesson for you in humility, and then we're all set. Now, but it could be a young married couple. That wife is stepping into her husband's life and saying, look, this is not right. And do you get defensive? Do you fight back? Or do we receive that godly correction? It may be from an elder. It may be from a friend. It may be from a pastor speaking and offering correction. How do we respond and receive that? Now, as we finish the passage, there's a little part that I didn't read and that's at the end at uh, basically verses 47 and 48. If you look in 47 and 48, essentially what happens there is it gives a positive summary to Saul's life. It says Saul had taken over the kingship over Israel. He fought against all his enemies on every side. And then we go on and it said he did valiantly and struck them and plundered them and defeated them. And so... We come to this part that doesn't fit. It's a nice sermon when it's Jonathan all good, Saul all bad. This doesn't fit. Author, Samuel, whoever it is, why, why'd you do that? That didn't fit into a nice sermon like that. Okay, It's like you're driving down the road. Somebody cuts you off. You drive up and take a look at them, expecting to see the devil incarnate fangs, horns, it's a nice little lady waving. She didn't know she did anything wrong. It doesn't fit. So how does this fit? It's because in the end, Saul did some good things. He was a good military leader. He brought some good things about. And it's in the end, it's not really about Saul. It's not really about Jonathan. It's about God. And God's bringing about his purpose for his people He's going to use Saul at times. He's going to use Jonathan at times to bring about what matters for his people. So even though Saul did some good things, he never had the relationship. He never truly repented. He never, I would, I would wonder, had he ever called God his father and had that kind of relationship? But we're seeing this is more about God than either of them. And it's seeing also the word advocate. As we close, thinking of an advocate. An advocate for Israel, an advocate for you and for me. For the unbeliever, 
as you think about that word and you think of in that scene, would I have had an advocate who would have stood for me when my life is on the line? And for the unbeliever, the only hope is Christ as the advocate who has lived the perfect life, who kept all his vows, who was never on the sideline when he should have been in engaged in the battle. Christ was perfect. He is your only advocate. And for the believer, it is essentially the same. I have made rash vows. I have been on the sideline when I should have been engaged in the battle. I have not received correction well. And all those reasons point me to a need for an advocate to stand in my place. And that's essentially where we go the rest of the service is we say, in the Lord's Supper, we are acknowledging my advocate has been Christ, is Christ, will be Christ. He is the one who did all these things perfectly in my behalf. Let us pray. Lord, a, a, a powerful word, a good word from 1 Samuel. As we see these contrasts in leaders and how we aspire, the Lord, make me one who is bold like Jonathan, who aspires to do great things for the kingdom and rescue me from being prideful and selfish like Saul. And may that be the truth for all of us. But at the core, may we realize, leader, follower, whatever we may be, that we need an advocate who has been perfect, who has been the second king, who has done everything perfectly, and then lay down his life on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus.